can go ahead and find your seat. Welcome to New Valley. So, so glad that you're here. And uh, my name is Scott, and it's so good, good to be with you this morning. Um, we're going to be starting a new series next week in Galatians, a brand new series that we'll be in for a good 13 to 15 weeks or so. And really excited to kick that off next week. And so it, you may, in preparation, want to read through it. It's a relatively short book, but we're going to be studying that all spring and really looking forward to that. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34 this morning. It's also in your bulletin on the screen as well. And <clears throat> these are the words of Jesus as he's teaching in parables about what the kingdom is like, what the kingdom is like. And he says this, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, use it, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and after the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how the earth produced by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds in the earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. In the early days of uh, New Valley, when we were first starting, we met in my home in the living room, and that was our primary meeting. We had Bible study. And then on Sunday evenings, we would meet at the ASU. Uh, Arizona State has a campus crusade ministry, and they, they own a house on campus, and they would allow us to use uh, the secondary house behind their main house uh, to do training. And we would meet there every Sunday night in the afternoon, and discuss what kind of church we were going to be. On Wednesday, we would study the Bible together and invite anybody and everybody, but Sunday night were for those people who were ready to commit to being part of New Valley and launching it and praying and thinking about the type of church we were going to be. And I did a ton of training with that group of people in order to create a specific kind of church and a culture that we wanted and the kind of church that we wanted to be and the kind of church that we did not want to be. And this morning, last week as well, if you weren't here, you can go back and listen, and this morning is like that. Um, I'm going to assume, and this is not true, many of you are visiting, thank you, we're so glad that you're here, we hope you'll consider making this your church home, but this morning, I'm, I'm here to train you, church, and if you're part of a local church in some other state or other part of the country, this is, gonna, this is really going to be about uh, the body of Christ, not, not just New Valley Church, but the church and where we find ourselves in our day and age. And in many respects, this morning is a call to mission. 
Jesus called his church into being through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And upon resurrecting from the dead three days later, he appears to the disciples and he gives them, as you know, the Great Commission. And he tells them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And a healthy church goes with this commission. Every church, this is the mission of our church, to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ, to make them and mature them. So making disciples, we should see as a church people coming into our, uh, in our sphere of influence and friendships and, and into this body and people becoming followers of Jesus Christ. And we have seen that throughout our church history, but may we pray for more and more and more so that we see adults, we, we baptize infants here, that we may also see adults baptized routinely and regularly, that we may make disciples and mature them, make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. It is very easy for a church to focus on one or other of those objectives, and frankly, it's very easy on the one hand for churches in our tribe and our team to just focus on maturing those who already believe. And we leave the mission side of the church to other people. We pay them. We, we hire missionaries. We send them out. We, we pay campus workers. We do these kind of things. Someone else to do mission, but we will mature disciples. It is also sometimes a, another extreme of churches that will focus only on evangelism and outreach and be so seeker-driven that there's never any process for maturing those disciples that come and follow Jesus. And I'm not trying to say we're so great or that we're doing this the correct way because we're not, and we have so much to grow in, church. But we are called, whether we're doing it well or not, to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. You with me? All right. The early church was called into mission by Jesus himself. We just talked about that in Matthew 28, right? We know that. And for the first 300 years of the early church, they were on mission. They had to be. They were isolated, and they were persecuted. To be a follower of Jesus in Jerusalem and the Roman Empire was a dangerous, dangerous thing. People were losing their life because they would be baptized. That is still true today in many parts of the world. However, um, what happened is, after the first 300 years, the Roman Empire... Uh, began to uh, embrace Christianity. For the first 300 years, the early church suffered great persecution, uh, but the church continued to grow through the sacrifice of the martyrs. And I want to read you a quote from a great book called The Light to the Nations by Michael Goheen, who is a professor and theologian, and he actually is the primary theologian and professor that oversees something here in town. It's a, it's a training center for students and pastors here in town called the Missional Training Center. And he writes this, the members of the church of the first 300 centuries, of the first three centuries AD, living in the midst of pagan and often hostile Roman Empire, defined themselves as resident aliens. These early Christians understood themselves to be different from others in the culture and lived together as an alternative community by the story of the Bible. 
The entire catechism process had its pastoral purpose to empower a distinct people shaped by the story of the Bible. They, they had to. They only had one another. They were persecuted. They were isolated. They were resident aliens. They saw themselves distinctly as a people who were called on mission. But in AD 312, if you know your history, the Emperor Constantine was baptized, and he legalized Christianity. And imagine how great that would feel if you're a Christian in the first century. Finally, finally they're embracing my faith. Finally, uh, my family won't necessarily die if they're baptized. And that would bring such sweet relief. And it was, and it was a blessing in many respects. But it changed the identity of the church. And they went from being outsiders who knew that they were on mission to being institutionalized and accepted by the culture and accepted by the government and accepted by the power. And eventually what happened, as you know, the Roman Empire became what's known as Christendom. Christendom. And the problem with Christendom is this. First of all, (laughs) it is when culture... The country in which you live, or the empire in which you live, or the nation in which you live, and your faith have such a close symbiotic relationship that you can't distinguish between your culture that you live in and the kingdom of God because you've assumed that they're exactly the same thing. And when you look around your city or your state or your country, you assume that just about everybody around you follows Jesus or is a Christian or shares your presuppositions in faith And so you don't have to have a missional identity. Leslie Newbegin was a British pastor who became a missionary to India. And he did so so long ago that it's not like you could bounce back and forth between India and Great Britain very often. And so he went away and he only came back to visit from various various times. But when he returned back to the UK after having been a missionary for 40 years in India, what he discovered in the 1970s that everything had changed in England. When he left the United Kingdom, it was essentially Christendom. That the culture of England at that time and and the Christian faith were, were so closely wed that it was hard to distinguish between the two. But when he came back 40 years later, what he found was England was absolutely no longer Christendom, but the church was still behaving as if it was. They were now culturally in a position where they should have been operating on mission to their particular place and culture, but instead were still acting like an institution that was still there to babysit Christians. Now, England had changed, but the church had not changed. And in my humble opinion, this is where we find ourselves in the United States. America has changed, and we all know that. But we don't know what to do about it. And we're wringing our hands to say, we want our political power back. And we want influence back. And we want this back. And largely, it's often from a perspective of our nation is falling apart, and we're gravely concerned for our young people and the culture and the people of this nation. But there is a sense in which we're wringing our hands saying, we want our influence and power back. But friends, what I'm here to tell us and call us to as a church and a church and the church 
is it is now time for the church in all of the West, but specifically in the United States, to see we are now in a moment of mission. It is no longer Christendom. I'm not sure America has ever been truly Christendom, but there was such a symbiotic relationship between the Christian faith in the United States for so long. You could feel extremely at home here and make certain assumptions about people, places, and culture that honestly you can't anymore. It is now time, church, for us to take up the commission that Jesus has given us as resident aliens and say we are on mission. I've got two sort of ordinary arching points, large big ideas this morning, really the same idea, and then three points to follow the text. First, the big overarching idea is this, our identity as Jesus' church must become missional. We are daily sent on mission, as opposed to institutional, which is we support those who are daily sent on mission. Please hear me. (laughs) Do not stop supporting those who are on mission in other places around the world. That's not what we are saying. New Valley has a number of missionaries that we love, support, will continue to. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is we, church, here in America, have to join them as they are on mission in Indonesia, as they are on mission in India, in Japan, and around the world. We have to join them on mission here right here. And the church itself needs to shape a new identity, which is actually a biblical identity, not just a cultural one, which is shaped around the gospel of God calling us on mission. And how do we do that? And so this is my challenge to you this morning, how to do it, missional living. Frankly, it's ordinary people doing ordinary things with prayer and gospel intentionality. That's what I want you to focus on in the coming weeks, months, and years. Ordinary people doing ordinary things through prayer and gospel intentionality. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Three points today. I know it's confusing, but uh, so big idea. Now, following the text, we're going to look at the heart of the kingdom, the work of the kingdom, and the size of the kingdom. First, the heart of the kingdom. In Mark chapter 4, so that was preliminary to the sermon. Now we're getting into the, the text. Mark 4, 21, the heart of the kingdom. Jesus asked a rhetorical question. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? And the answer is, of course, no. (laughs) It'd be ridiculous to light a lamp and to put it, a bushel basket over it, or to place it under the bed. You would never do that. We almost never use lamps, by the way, do we? we we're, that's not a thing that we do any longer, except maybe when camping. And when you light a lamp, what do you do? You don't stick it under the tent. You don't put it under your RV. You light it, and you, you stick it up so that light will pierce the darkness. That's what Jesus is saying. A very similar parable uh, that Jesus taught was this in a story, Matthew 5. He says, you are the light of the world, church. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to everything in the house. In the same way, 
Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. I am so thankful that the heart of the kingdom, and it's not just the kingdom, it's the king, thank God, is a missional heart. I, I was not raised in faith. My dad was an agnostic. When I would go out and look at the billions of stars in the universe, I was taught a, a very a scientific worldview that said, basically, yes, there's billions and billions. Isn't it amazing what chance can do? But I am so thankful that God is a missional God that came after me in, in my doubts and unbelief and frankly, much worse than my rebellion against him and my desire just to live for myself and he took this incredibly selfish high school student who was just living and had nothing but plans to live for myself. My plan and objective was all about me. And the God of the universe came into my life and just turned the tables of my life upside down and flipped it all and said, no, you're going to follow me. <laughs> Ruining my plans, by the way, beautifully, and calling me to himself. And then calling me to say, hey, like the other disciples, I've called you to become a fisher of men and women, to see others come. Jesus Christ comes to us, gives us his light, calls us out of darkness, but then says, you also are the light of the world. You have my Holy Spirit. You are to be lifted up, and you are to be lifting me up so that people can see me, and that your deeds are so good that people say, I want to be in that kingdom. I want to be associated with this. I want to be called into this. The heart of this king, this heart of this king is a missional heart. He loves the lost, the least, the poor, the broken, the oppressed. He loves the nations. Is that your heart? And, and church, that's exactly where we live, right here. And I'm just going to admit, over time, my heart can become very, very calloused. What? A minister? Yes. If I'm not careful, my heart is not like God's heart, and I can have a very, very hard heart towards people I don't know, and people I do know, and people I see on the street, and people who are lost and least and poor, and who need Jesus. It's Jesus' heart that this church would be on mission to this city in such a way that those people, people who are far from his kingdom would come. Is that our heart? I pray for that heart. I pray for that heart. Next, the work of the kingdom. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground, he sleeps, gets up night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produced by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus changes metaphors from light uh, to farming. And a farmer in his day, uh, I mentioned last week, they didn't plow, they didn't have plows yet, uh, they didn't have undergraduate degrees in agriculture, uh, they didn't have a forecast, a 10-day forecast. They had seed, they had a bunch of really bad land that they might scratch a little and try to cultivate a little, but really they just scattered the seed everywhere, and all they could do was pray and watch and wait. He scatters the seed, and without him doing anything else, the farmer, it grew. 
And my big takeaway from that is this. There is the work of the kingdom and the heart of the kingdom, and the main thing is that we need to ask God to give us his heart. We sow seed, but we are utterly and completely dependent upon God for what we need in this day and this age for this church and for our nation. We are utterly dependent upon God. We need to work in his kingdom. We need to make and mature disciples. But friends, what I'm here to tell you, it is impossible without God. If we want revival, if we want people to come to faith, if we want revival just for our own hearts, you can't put that on the calendar and say, hey, we're having a revival a week from now. We're going to have so-and-so come down and speak, and, and we're going to have revival. That's the kind of culture I grew up in in the Midwest. People would have revivals every year. You don't put revival on the calendar. Why? Not actual revival. <laughs> you can have an event where somebody might talk and some good music happens and some emotions take place. But for our hearts to be cut to the core to where we actually love the people of this nation, we need revival. I actually think the biggest need right now is not that we do anything more in our lives or that we but that we, that our hearts are broken, that we may have a heart that God has for people. And the first and foremost thing, church, is we need a revival. And as a pastor and an elder in this church and a church and a pastor that loves this city, I just, it's hard because it's out of our control. That's what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God is like this. You scatter seed. You've got no plow. You've got no 10-day forecast. You don't have anything to really work the ground. You just scatter the seed and say, dear God, give me a harvest. That's where we're at. But I have, I have great news for you. The Lord loves to work in that way when his people who are called by his name pray and come to him in humility. And God loves to bring his work. God loves to do his work through us, but it will require humility and a heart that has his heart. We look. What is the work that we can do? Because we are called to work, and we are utterly dependent upon him as we work. I want to ask you a question. If all of a sudden every one of us decided together mutually, we we're going to pack up everything we own, and we're going to move or sell or get rid of it, offer it all up, we're going to get in an airplane a month from now, and we're all going to move to Japan to plant a church together. Every one of us. So we've done that now. We've sold our stuff. We've gotten on a plane. We're the team. We're going to Japan and, and we now have to plant a church in Japan. What would we do? What would we do to be effective? We're on mission. We know ultimately it's God's work. He's sovereign. Nothing will happen apart from his power, yet we have free will, and he's called us to work. So what would we do in preparation that we might see a harvest? What would scattering the seed look like for us as missionaries to Japan? I'm, I'm literally asking you, class, what would we do? Mike, what would we do? You would actually have to go and meet people? Okay, I'm with you. I think that's something you might have to do. Adam. You might, before you go and meet people and start having that conversation, learn a very difficult language called Japanese. Yes, sir. You would have to pray. You would have to pray, pray, pray. Yes. 
you would have to start looking and, and asking what are the questions people in that culture are asking that, uh, that only Jesus Christ can be the solution to. And what I've found is, as a missionary, is that every culture, no matter how far it is from God, is asking questions that only Jesus can answer, that we all have idols of the heart. Every culture has idols, especially ours, and we bow to those idols, but really, the idol is never the answer. It's the gospel of Jesus. What else? Anything else you can think of? You'd have to be a good example of like, hey, if you ever become a Christian, this is what it looks like. Fighting, pointing the finger, dividing over doctrinal issues. We're the only true group, right? That's, no. They'll know you're Christians because you love one another. Anything else? You'd have to serve the people. They would have to know that you love them. And let me tell you, if you're in Japan, you better be in for the long haul because I have several friends that are there. You have to be patient. Bob? Show people kindness in serving them. Patience, love, kindness, demonstrating the gospel. I think you know where I'm going with this. But it's hard. You ever see the Mormon dudes? Uh, of course you do. But that are here? So I've been here 15 years now planning New Valley, and because I've entrenched myself at New Valley, many of my good friends are LDS people, and some of my favorite people in the Valley are among them. And they go all over the world. One of my best friends, he spent uh, his three years in, or two years in, in Brazil, in the, in the heart of the jungle. But what if you're that guy <laughs> called to go to Mesa? You know, the largest Mormon population outside of Utah for many, many years was where? It was Mesa. I think it was the second temple that was ever built in Mesa. Like, Mesa is the headquarters for Mormonism. Outside of Utah, Mesa, and now it's Gilbert. Cheaper housing, kept moving east. <laughs> You're on a bike in Gilbert, Arizona, and 105 degrees, and you're knocking on doors, and about two-thirds of the people you're knocking on are already LDS, right? We'll see you at the ward on Sunday, you know, and take you out for pizza. No coffee, but you can have a Diet Coke. Um, and so, sorry for that. Um, <laughs> but think about how hard that would be. I actually, every time I see those guys on their bikes here in the valley, I, I feel like it's got to be 10 times more difficult for you than it is to have gone to South America, Japan, wherever you are sent. Because you are supposed to be a missionary, but it, you're, you're knocking on doors of people that look just like you, talk just like you, maybe even go to your church. And that's why I think it's hard for you and me. We feel so intertwined with our own culture and we have lives to live and work to do. And if you've been on a missions trip, you know it's great to pull yourself away and just be on mission. It's very difficult to do day to day in real life with people that you know and love and are around just all the time. But friends, that is what we are called to do. As difficult as it is. And now more than ever, we have to. Christendom, if it ever was in America, is no longer. We must take a missional, which is a biblical, identity and not just see 
that Tyson should be on mission or that Amanda should be on mission or the leaders and staff of churches should, but that we all, and that you need to see our role as your elders, as those who are training you, us, to be on mission together. We're all called on mission. Finally, the size of the kingdom, Mark 4, 30 through 32. And he said, what can we compare the kingdom of God or what is the parable shall we use? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make its nest in its shade. Now this is an interesting parable. And what's fascinating about it is the, the mustard seed is actually not the smallest seed in, in all the earth. Uh, it was a metaphor for smallness, though, in that culture, and it was thought to be in that day and age they really did believe it was the smallest. But the seed represented smallness, and at that time they felt very small and diminutive. They felt like, how on earth can this kingdom grow, this first century church? How can we as this small band of followers of Jesus Christ see anything happen but Jesus made a promise, this little tiny seed. It will grow, not into a cedar, but into a mustard plant, which is actually more of like a shrub than, than a, a, a large shrub, a garden plant, not, not a huge tree, not a sycamore, not an oak. Think like a mesquite tree or a, a palo verde, but not in your yard with a water supply, like out in the desert, just limping along, just trying to survive out in the desert. That's what the mustard seed would produce. But it was big enough that the birds of the air could come and find shade in it. And most scholars believe that that is part of the metaphor is the idea that Israel was meant to be a light to the nations and that the birds of the air were the Gentiles, those who were far from the kingdom could come and they could find shade and rest and find a home in the kingdom. Israel was always called to have a missional identity. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to the nations, that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham, who was Jesus himself. But they forgot their missional identity, and they began to make it all about them. You have been given the light of Jesus Christ, and it doesn't make sense. Jesus is saying it just doesn't make sense to hide that, to su suppress it, to put it under someplace and disclose it. Jesus says being a Christian means lifting your light so that all may see. Michael Goheen says in, in the same book, A Light to the Nations, missional describes not a specific activity of the church, but the very essence and identity of the church as it takes up its role in God's story in the context of its culture and participates in God's mission in the world. It's great to have mission committees. I actually oversee the missions committee or missions team of our presbytery, but would that every part of the church be on mission? We have a team that oversees our missionaries, but like, wouldn't it be great if we said, look, the missional aspect and identity is so strong that it almost doesn't make sense for us to have a missional committee because we are on mission. It's not a part of what we do. It is who we are. This is what Jesus is calling us to. Missional living. 
Every time we talk about evangelism, every time we talk about sharing our faith, every time all you hear, and I know it's true, is somebody else is asking me to do something more and I don't have time. So I'm going to flip it on you. I'm actually not asking you to do anything other than what you're already doing. But I am asking you also to pray that God would change our hearts because this is, that's, the real, that's the real issue. That we may have his heart. That we as a church, we as individuals would have his heart for people. But today I'm not gonna ask you to do anything. I don't have some program I'm calling you to. I'm not gonna go ask you to knock on a door or go somewhere or do anything. What I'm saying is this. You're an ordinary person and every day you do ordinary things but if you will pray with gospel intentionality, so moved by the gospel that Jesus is moving in your heart, and you say, I must pray like the farmer. I am utterly dependent upon him for the harvest, but I will pray that God will use my ordinary things as an ordinary person to extend his kingdom. Every day, you get up, so 